Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see you. Um, today is a special Sunday for those of you that are new to the Christian calendar. And it was actually, it started on Friday night, but on Sunday today, we call this Epiphany. Um, and for those of you who that's new, this is the day that we commemorate the coming of the three kings or the magi to um, to the Messiah Christ, or sorry, to the Messiah child. And so this is an interesting topic of discussion for us because what we're looking at is a group of Gentiles, a group of people who are not part of Israel, who have heard promises of a Messiah and go all this way to find Jesus, to find the Christ child. And so what I want to look at today is what is the significance of that? Why is that so important? Why would we commemorate that? And how does it help us understand our place in this world today? Now, as a pastor, a question that I get asked a lot is, and and it comes up in different areas of life, but one of the big questions that keeps coming up is, how do we engage with the world around us? This comes up with families going, should I put my kids in public school or should I homeschool them? Um, It comes up with entertainment and media. What should we watch? What shouldn't we watch? It comes up in university. Should I study about other religions or should I not look at those things? Right? There's all these big questions that kind of come up. And I think the thread is, how do I interact with these other parts of the world that aren't connected, as far as we understand, directly to Jesus? Are these things a threat to my faith? Are they a threat to my life? Should I try and avoid them at all costs? And what should my relationship be like with them when I'm forced to engage with them? For those of us who lived in Canada our whole lives, the idea of encountering another culture is not just foreign because it's another part of the world, it's scary to people often. Because they think, well, if I engage with this other culture, does that mean I'm giving my heart to to participation in this other religion? If I eat this food, what is the significance of this food? And am I participating in something I shouldn't be? And we generally just have a wariness of things other than us, don't we? Things that we're just scared of that we go, I'm not sure I understand those practices. For a lot of years, Jackie and I would take teams of youth or um, other people within the church to other countries. And so we'd go visit these you know, significant traditional sites or even temples and things like that. And that's always the driving question for these you know, tender little Christians of like, if we go in here, what does that mean? You know, what's going to happen to us? And, and what are we, you know, are we welcoming something into our lives that we don't want to? And there's this fear about this. And so the story of the Magi is actually a really big story spanning all of the Bible. That there's this big, long story that's been taking place that helps us find our footing in the world that we live in, which is this combination of what the faith that we hold to 
in a world with all of these different ideologies, all of these different spiritualities and different um, understandings and philosophies of the world, how do we exist within that with commitment to Jesus, but also a kindness to the world around us? So I'll be honest, this subject has intimidated me a bit as I prepared for it. Uh, You could probably hear that a little bit this morning. But hopefully we could talk a bit about this and see if we can get a clear picture of what Jesus would speak to us this morning about that. So let's get some backstory about the Magi. As many of you know, you kind of picture the the three wise men um, as traditionally essential to the nativity scene. Right, you see them, we have this, I don't know, maybe one of you gave it to us, but we have this giant porcelain nativity scene that they stand about this high in our house during Christmas. And my house is not big enough for a nativity scene this big, okay? if, if I'm just honest with you. So it like, takes up a whole corner of the house. Um, but the magi are, are always the ones standing, right? The three kings are standing, so they're kind of the biggest in the nativity story. The word epiphany comes from the Greek epiphania, meaning manifestation or appearance. So it's this idea that the gospel is manifested to the Magi in another culture, in another religion, in another part of the world. And they've seen the signs of the promise of the Christ enough that they would travel from their land, which all the scriptures tell us is that they come from the east, and that they come from the eastern nations to find Jesus. And so for us in the church, this becomes the season of Epiphany, which is a season where we celebrate the mission of the church. The idea that God is manifesting or appearing the gospel in other nations, in other cultures, in other religions, in other parts of the world. But the backstory of all of this goes all the way back to the dawn of Israel, to the beginning of God's people. And what we see in the Christian tradition is kind of how it looks at human history. In the story of the Bible, we have God creating all people, all tribes, all nations, and tongues, and loves them. He loves all the people of the world, But because of sin in the heart of humanity, the nations of the world fall to evil. And we see this not only at an individual level, but at a national level. So kind of leading up to, from the Garden of Eden to the flood, we hear about how evil grows within the hearts of humanity and everybody is given over to this function. And so then what we see is nations too are bent on greed, power and violence and every kind of evil at a national level. To reveal his saving and redeeming love, though, God creates a new nation. So if you think of like world history, there's all these nations of the world, there's empires, um, there's like the Tower of Babel and all of these these things across the world exist. But God says, I'm going to create one little nation in this world of powerful nations, and one that's going to be weak and insignificant 
in order to shame the strong and the powerful. And so he does this by choosing one couple. Um, one married couple. Does anyone know who they are? Anyone? Abraham and? Yeah, so he chooses Abraham and Sarah. And this is why the whole story of the Bible is a family line chronicle. Is because he chooses this family to become a nation, and then this nation comes to be called Israel. And so the Bible looks at the nations of the world essentially in two categories. So this is just how the Bible thinks. That there's God's chosen people, Israel, which is what the scriptures are predominantly about. And then there's a second category called the Gentiles. You heard that phrase in the church before? So that's any people and any nation that is not Israel. So that's the way the Bible thinks. There's just these two categories. Israel and then everybody else. Okay? We, I think as far as I know, are mostly in the everybody else category in our church. Okay? We're Gentiles. Gentiles are anybody that is not of Israel. Okay? So God's initial promise to Israel, though, is this. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will make you a blessing to all the nations. That's the fundamental promise that God starts his, um, the nation on. is this idea that I'll choose this family, that I'll become a nation, and I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will make you a blessing to the world. Okay? Now, as, part, as that story progresses, then this kind of fourth aspect starts to really show itself, which is, but you cannot be like the other nations. Because that's his whole design, is to create this nation that will reveal God to the world, that will show his nature and his love and his saving plan, and that he will intervene in the brokenness of humanity through it. So, as part of their purpose and their calling, he's saying you're meant to be different. You're meant to be different than the way the rest of the world functions. So the promise continues through many generations And as time goes on and new problems arise, he kind of works out his promise more and more. So at one point, Israel says, we want to be like everybody else, and we want to have a king, not just a god. We want a king too. And so who's the king that they end up getting? Saul. Is Saul a good king? He's not great. Saul's like the other kings of the world. And what ends up happening, though, is then God says, Because you wanted a king, instead of just having me as God, I'm going to give you a promise that what will come for you is a true king, a God king. And he gives them the promise of the Christ, that Christ will come as a king and he will be the true eternal king of Israel. So this is an example of what happens over time. God keeps working out the promise, explaining it further. And as Israel's sin persists, God's promises to send a Savior as a solution becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And this reveals how exactly Israel is meant to be a blessing to the nations. The way they're meant to be a blessing to the nations is by providing all people of all places with what? 
with the Savior. Yeah, with the Christ. So that's their purpose. Now, the prophetic writings of the Old Testament are essentially God speaking to Israel, reminding them of His promise and of their promise to Him, warning them not to be like the other nations, disciplining them when they are, comforting them, wooing them back to Himself, grieving over their bad decisions, and then again, always reinforcing the promise in their current circumstances. And their current circumstances are always different. But in every case, he's always showing that there's more of the promise to sustain them through the hard thing that they're going through. So for those of you that are starting like a, a Bible in a year reading, or if you're doing, if you're following the daily office, which is the Anglican prayer book, which is daily devotions for morning and evening reading, you'll be working your way through this whole story and you'll see this thread. You'll see how it works itself out. Now, here's the sad thing about Israel's story, is that the result is always the same. Israel is consistently unfaithful to God. The kings are unfaithful. The nation's unfaithful. And there's hopeless messes that keep presenting themselves because it highlights their need for inner salvation. Even though God's calling them as people and claiming them as His nation, there's still an internal problem at work within humanity and it always pulls them away from God. And so we see that unfaithfulness. But despite their unfaithfulness, God is going to keep His promises to them anyway. And this is what we see. The failure of Israel over and over and over and over again to be faithful and God's unwavering faithfulness despite that. Isn't that good news? And then he doubles down over and over and over again because he's saying, not only will I remain faithful to you, but I'm going to send you a Messiah. I'm going to send you a king who's going to solve the problem at work in you that's making the nation move away from me. And the promises of this Messiah King who's going to create a new family and an eternal Israel, which we now know as the church. Okay? So God's working with Israel all the time. And as they persist in unfaithfulness, it often leads to, uh, well not often, but two specific times, it leads to something called exile. You ever heard that word before? What happens is that God disciplines their unfaithfulness by removing them from the physical land that He's given them. This is where God allows one of the nations to essentially conquer Israel and to remove them from the land. So the first time we see this, they're conquered. The northern tribes of Israel are conquered by the Assyrians, and then a couple hundred years later we see the southern tribes conquered by the Babylonians. And in both cases they're removed into an exile where they're taken away from their physical land. So what we end up with then is generations of God's people who are born in, lived through, and die in exile. Wouldn't that be difficult? Now what's helpful about that language, just for you to understand, is that's how the New Testament talks about the church. That we're God's people, 
But we're in a land of exile. This is not our forever home. Did you know that? So anytime you get somebody who's mixing Christianity and going, this is a Christian nation and this is God's place, it's an overemphasis of it. Because we're meant to see ourselves as aliens in this world. We're meant to see ourselves as our king is only Christ, our nation is Christ's kingdom, and our forever home is coming. And this is momentary. The country we live in, the place we're in, the politics we're a part of, is all momentary and secondary to Jesus. True? Right? So that's what we're beholden to. Now, what we see through the whole story is that Israel has a very complicated relationship with the Gentile world. That's an understatement. Okay? But they have a very complicated relationship. So here's what we see. Israel's enslaved by another nation, Egypt. Israel wanders the desert, fending off marauders and in conflict with the surrounding nations for 40 years. Israel's given the promised land by God. And we don't have time to go into all this, but part of why God does that is because of the evil at work within those nations. God does it as a judgment to the Canaanites, etc. Because he's saying they're they are bringing about evil on the world that has to be answered for. And so he gives their land to Israel because of that. Then Israel conquers all of these other nations under Joshua. That's a complicated relationship, isn't it? Coming in and saying, we're going to take this city. I realize we're walking all over a lot of modern day politics. It's like, oh man, this is, this is a lot. Okay? But I'm just talking Bible for a minute. Then Israel settles the land. Each person is apportioned a part of the land. And part of their job is to ensure that all of the borders are kept. Israel's always defending against outside attacks. Israel's always being tempted by the other religions, the other gods, and the other practices of the nations. And Israel consistently puts their trust in those other nations and those other religions, and those other gods. That they fall to those temptations and then incorporate those things into their life and into the national function. Israel's kings act just like the other kings. Like when you actually go through all the line of the kings, the evil kings far outweigh the good kings. And the good kings really stand out because of that. There's really beautiful examples of it. But it's a sad story when you look at the line of Israel's kings. And then we have Israel is conquered and exiled by other nations. Would you say that's a complicated relationship with the rest of the world? That's pretty complicated, isn't it? So when we look at all of this, the summary we kind of end up with is God saying, I will be your God. And Israel says, will have many gods in their functionality. And then we have God saying, you will be my people. And Israel says, we'll give ourselves to other nations and to other gods. God says, you will be a blessing to the nations. And Israel says, we despise the other nations. God says, I will send a savior through Israel. And then ultimately, Israel says, give us Barabbas. It's a complicated 
story that we see throughout the Bible. And if you think, when you hear about all that, you're like, man, Ryan, why are you so hard on Israel? Because Israel is us. Because this is the state of the human heart. And this is why is the story of Israel throughout the span of the Scriptures is such a gift to us, is because it helps us go, this is the same problem I have. This is the same thing I do with my own, my own heart and my own house. This is the same way I act to the rest of the world. And it gives us this wide scope of generations, but it helps us see the fact that there's a real problem within me. And so, in all of this story, where God's saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will be a blessing to the world, and sin seems to want to frustrate and destroy that calling. What do we see? We see God's faithfulness to go, even when you don't trust me, I will be your God. Even when you try to be a part of other nations, you will be my people and I won't forget you and I won't lose you. And even when you don't want to be a blessing to the world around you, where you're afraid of it and you want to bubble yourself off from it, you want to hide from it, I will still fulfill my promise to the rest of the world through you. And this is what we have in the story of the Magi. So how, how did these learned men, these kings, which is kind of a loose term, or these priests, or kind of, uh, of these other places, these other cultures, these other religions, how did they end up coming to find Jesus? It's because God was working in those places. God was at work in foreign lands. God was even at work in foreign religion. How does he do that? I think ultimately because truth is beholden to Jesus. When you look at and you study world religions, you study spirituality, you study all the different ideologies and philosophies that are being offered in the world, always within every single one of them, there's truth. There's truth present within it. But we also see that there's truth corrupted, right? There's truth manipulated. There's evil at work. When you study, you know, different religious practices and you look at things like, it's easy because it seems far away from us. You can look at something like Aztec civilization and you go, oh, human sacrifice is bad. Right? It's easy to see it from this distance. But at work within these cultures, there's always truth. There's always this idea that we these needs that need to be met that are leveraged to get people to do things or to buy into things and to do evil. But here in the midst of all of it, what we see is that God has always, the reason for the genesis of Israel and the reason for his faithfulness within Israel and the reason for his devotion to Israel is because of Israel's call to be a blessing to all nations. It's a favoritism when you look at it, but it's a favoritism that blesses the world. The same way we look at God's love for Christ, for Jesus, and we go, He's the favored Son in such a way that it blesses the world. And we share in that blessing through the Christ. So when we look at this whole story, it's a lot to take in, but what we end up seeing is that God is faithful. God is faithful in His promise 
to Abraham and sends his son through Abraham's line. God is faithful to Israel because he sends the Savior through that line. God is faithful to David because he sends the Savior through David's line. And in all of this, God is faithful to the nations because he sends Jesus through Israel despite all of that conflict and despite all of that difficult relationship between Israel and the world, God is still faithful to the nations of the world because he sends Jesus to them. And when we have this story of the Magi, of these men coming to Christ, they're following prophecies that came to them through the works that they're doing in their country and in their traditions. And it's a wild thing to think of. Because we have two options. Either God is working in their culture and religion and their sciences to point them to the promise of Jesus. Or the other option, which some scholars would argue, is that the reason the wise men know of the coming Messiah is because of writings from Daniel, the prophet Daniel. Do you know that? Where was Daniel? He was in exile. So Daniel stuck in Babylon in exile, away from his homeland, holds to the promises of God, writes of God's promises, and all of these generations later, these wise men are reading these writings and seeing the promise of a Savior. Isn't that wild? So whichever option it is, both options lead to the same thing, which God is faithfully at work within that culture. God is faithfully at work within that world. And God is leading all people of all nations to the Christ. And fulfilling His promise that every culture and every nation of the earth would find what they need and what they long for in Jesus the Savior. So when we think about Epiphany today, we want to see the world the way the Scriptures see the world which is that God has given a promise and that He's at work within the world to accomplish it. That He's working from within the thoughts and within the readings and the research and even the resistance of His greatest skeptics and critics, God is working in the hearts of those individuals. So we tend, we've, we've taken on this kind of victim mentality within the church about the gospel to God. The world hates the gospel, the world hates the church, and the world wants nothing to do with it. Essentially, the church is weak, and the church is pathetic, and the church isn't compelling, just like Israel would have been thought of in the early chapters and books of the Old Testament. But in all of this, God is at work in weak things and in small things, to show how great his salvation is. And so it changes the way we see things to go. There is nobody out there and there is no philosophy or ideology or anything at work in the world that is bigger than or should intimidate the good news of Jesus. Instead, we should see at work within every single one of them, there's truth there that Christ wants to fulfill. There's real needs there that Christ is the solution for. 
And we should see, we should engage in conversation in such a way that we have a hopefulness and an expectancy that Jesus wants to show up in those spaces. Every good thing, every good desire that's in people is actually pulling them to an epiphany of Jesus. You hear me? Every good thing is pulling people to an epiphany of Jesus. If you, in my conversations with people who are not of our faith, often what I want to hear is, tell me what you love. Tell me what you're longing for, and I will tell you how Jesus is the only way to fulfill that. That it's a compelling reality at work within the world. And here's the thing, every evil thing that's at work within every culture, and Canadian culture is no um, acceptance to this rule. Every evil thing in this world is driving people to an epiphany of their need for Jesus. So every good thing is drawing them to Jesus, and every evil thing is driving them to Jesus. Because we hate evil, if we're honest. We don't want to be a part of that. And every vision or ideal that they have will eventually hit a ceiling of its own limitations. And this is, I think, where we're at within the world right now. We've had these dominant ideologies since the late 60s and early 70s that have been pushing things forward, but it's hitting a ceiling to go. We're actually not able to accomplish it. And I think when we hit that ceiling, it makes us go, we need a Savior for this. All of the human rights stuff that we've been pursuing for however many years, I think we're ultimately going to hit a ceiling to go, but humanity keeps doing evil things. We believe in human rights and we hurt people. How do those two things coexist? Because we can't accomplish our greatest ideals. We need a Savior who can change our hearts, who can change the structure of the human soul to make our ideals possible and received as a gift. And this is true of every one of us. We have ideals of the good we want to accomplish. Who has New Year's resolutions? Even if you're like, I'm not doing New Year's resolutions this year, in the back of your mind you're still going, these are the things I want to do different this year. Aren't you? Who's got 10 pounds or want to get rid of? So it's always there. I I, I almost did a video to send out to the church um, to talk about this a bit, to go, look, whatever your goals are for this next year, whatever your hopes are, the question you've got to ask yourself is, am I predominantly hoping to achieve that in my own strength? Am I hoping to achieve that in my own will, in my own desire, my own ability to follow through? Is that the quest of this year? Does that sound like gospel? Does that sound like good news? You're awfully quiet. Right? The reality is this idea that I can do it by myself is counter-gospel. It's counter-Jesus. And so our highest ideals and our hopes are meant to make us go, this is too high for me to attain in my own strength. 
too great for me to do because there's barriers inside of me. There's brokenness inside of me. There's evil inside of me that I need a solution for. And so Jesus, our, our, our goals for the year have to be about I want to be in Jesus and with Jesus in such a way that His grace accomplishes these things in His timetable. Who sets a New Year's resolution like that? Not many of us. Right? To to actually go, I need my inner life transformed by being in deep, intimate relationship with Jesus in such a way that new actions and new ways of being and new health is achieved by Him in me over time. Isn't that so countercultural? But here's the piece, is to go, because the ideals are so good and so right and so true, physical health is a good thing. Okay, Changes of routines and priorities, those are good pursuits. I'm not shaming you for having good goals. All we're saying is that they're so good, they need to be accomplished by God in you and for you and through you. Because that's gospel, right? That's grace. That's the good news. And so when we think about how we interact with other people in the world, one, we've got to be true to the gospel for our own selves. But two, when we're talking with others, I think we don't have to be afraid of other ideologies and philosophies and cultures and religions, not because we agree with it, but because we're looking for the seeds of truth, like with the Magi, that God is present. That God's at work within their world, drawing them to Jesus. And it's a much more hopeful interaction, isn't it? Instead of going, we believe in Jesus, so we disagree with everything. And we're fighting with everybody all the time. What we're actually saying is we're so confident in Jesus Let's have conversations about everything with everyone all the time to see about the seeds of God at work there and how they pull and push and point to Jesus as the fulfillment. Does that make sense? It's not an agreement with everything, but it's a hopeful disagreement on certain things to go, I don't agree with how you get there or how you think you're supposed to get there because I think Jesus is a better way of getting there. So we can agree on the fact that, yes, we want, let's say, human rights or yes, we want to be near to God. But rather than a sacrificial system of trying to get to God, we believe that Jesus fulfills the sacrifice to bring us to God. Those types of conversations. The, we, we believe in the value of the individual and this is how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Not through selfish living, not through um, intense independence, not through worldly fulfillment, but through Jesus. So I think as we enter into this season of epiphany, We want this big, grand story to shape how we see ourselves in relationship to the world. To go, we're not actually at war with everyone. We're actually here to be a blessing to everyone 
through the good news of Jesus. That's how confident we are in the gospel of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Let's turn our hearts to the table. Take a moment for private reflection.